Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they're available elsewhere. More information is at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Four months past the July 1st deadline, Pennsylvania may have a revenue package soon to pay for a $32 billion bipartisan spending plan. It's up to Governor Tom Wolf to give final approval to the budget, okayed by the House and Senate last week. So what's this budget look like, and how will you be impacted by it? Joining us is WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer. Katie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. There's a lot to talk about, but uh, let's talk about the highlights, uh, first of all. Highlights of this budget package. Yeah, the nice thing is this is a very easy budget to sum up. Uh, it's almost all borrowing. Uh, it, it was a $2.2 billion hole they had to fill, um, and $1.5 billion of that is going to be from borrowing, either from the tobacco um, settlement fund that the state got in the late 90s um, or the Liquor Control Board, securitizing future revenues from that. Um, and now we can get into why that's a little bit up in the air in a minute. But um, then there's also some fund transfers, I think $300 million of them that uh, Wolf has to decide uh, where they're coming from. He has not yet. Uh, and then there's also uh, so, you know borrowing from a couple other funds. Uh, there's some tiny tax increases and then uh, a gambling expansion, which doesn't make that much money, but is extremely broad and will be a pretty you know significant expansion for the state. Before we make it sound like uh, there's reason to be totally optimistic that this is ending, here's what the governor had to say about it yesterday. I am committed to the uh, borrowing from the uh, Liquor Control Board. I I think it really depends on what the CFA does. Okay, we're going to talk about that one in just a moment. Let's bring this other one up. There there are a couple (laughs) things I'm not not real comfortable with. I thought I'd get a, a cleaner bill than I got, so I'd like to have them go back to the drawing board. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, you know, my introduction made it sound like we finally have a budget in place. Well, we do have one has been proposed or has been uh, approved by both the House and the Senate. But now it is up to Governor Wolf. He's already signed on to part He's, of it. Yeah, he signed on to most of it. Um, what he was talking about in that second cut there was actually the education code, the public school code. Um, and he's had some issues with that bill. He was a little bit like, vague about what his issues actually were. Um, but in the past, he has uh, brought up there's like a retirement component in the bill. It would basically allow schools to lay off teachers for economic reasons. And that would be based on um, their reviews that they get yearly and not seniority, which would be different. So that's something that's been really controversial. Wolf vetoed it in the past, a provision that was basically like that. Um, Republicans have wanted it. I think some Democrats signed on to it, too. I think it was pretty, you know, they 
put it in pretty easily. Um, but yeah, so we'll see what he does with that. Um, he suggested going back to the drawing board. I'm not sure. He might have just been like spitballing there because it doesn't seem super likely that they actually will like that he'll veto that bill and push the whole thing back. Um, I think more likely, and of course I don't know yet, um, would be that he maybe lets it become law without his signature. And I think that would happen in like six or seven days at this point. So um, yeah, the education code, a little bit of a you know contentiousness there. But I mean, he signed the rest of them. It's, the rest of it's pretty much done. The only you know, outlying thing now is that uh, there are some components of the bills that he signed that like the money isn't totally like there yet. You know, he has to figure out that borrowing. He has to figure out what funds to transfer. And so that's going to be where there's some questions. And as you heard uh, in that first cut that you pre-played for us. Um, <laughs> here's a preview. Yeah, he uh, he's not totally sure where that huge chunk of borrowing is going to come from yet. I'm going to get back to the school yeah. code, but since we did uh, just hear that preview uh, talking about borrowing, uh, just to be clear, what the legislature did was, uh, as you said earlier, uh, they are looking to borrow from the tobacco settlement fund. And for everyone, you know, we always refer to tobacco settlement. This was something back in the 90s. Yeah. It, what was it, 38 states, something like that, got settlements from the tobacco companies for the the harm that they've caused. Yeah, to, basically for health care costs. Right, for health care costs. Yeah, and we and get, that's what the money had been, uh, you know, had been earmarked for. Yes. Um, so, yeah, usually, and, you know, a lot of states have started using this money for, like, budgetary things. So Pennsylvania wouldn't be alone if we borrowed from this fund. But, yeah, right now, the money that we get annually from the tobacco settlement, from tobacco companies, is, you know, largely used. Some of it goes to the general fund. Some of it's used for health care uh, programs. A lot of it is for, like, anti-smoking and smoking cessation programs. Programs. So um, that is something that the anti-smoking industry has obviously been uh, a little bit up in arms about. Um, so that money, again, as as in any large borrow, that would be you know given to us up front, one point five billion, and then we'd pay that back with interest over like at least twenty years, possibly more. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Wolf, you know, he came up with his own alternative plan because he wasn't super happy with that. And that alternative plan was to borrow from profits from the sale of liquor at the liquor, the wine and spirit shops yes. in Pennsylvania, which the, the state runs. Now, one of the big questions there... now. Republicans, by the way, aren't real thrilled with that. Not thrilled. And one of the reasons that they're not thrilled about it is that uh, there is a segment of the Republican uh, legislature that has, you know, for years has wanted to privatize, sell off liquor stores. Yeah. Question I have, and I don't even know if this has been discussed, but maybe between the lines, if you read between the lines, is that if the governor is committed to borrowing money from the sale of liquor, does that preclude the sale of liquor stores and liquor sales being privatized in Pennsylvania? I mean, not necessarily, but like, yeah, kind of, because if you're going to sell off the liquor stores, like you don't want them to be saddled with that enormous amount of debt, you know, it just it makes them harder to sell, right? Because this borrow would literally be them, you know, borrowing against future profits for 20 years. So they would be giving us a billion and a half dollars up front, and then their profits would be paying that off. That's a lot of money. And that's a, like kind of, it reaches the top of what the LCB makes, you know, it really is a... And I'm not saying they're going to strain them financially because they've said, you know, this is possible. We could do it. But um, it's I just think it makes it much less attractive to buyers so that it, it would make it much harder to privatize for sure. The governor hasn't spoken publicly 
uh, in too many specifics. Now, he spoke mm. yesterday before uh, the Pennsylvania Press Club and yeah. answered a lot of these questions. But at the same time, uh, you know, some of the information he hasn't divulged uh, publicly. Yeah. One is, or maybe he has, I'll ask you the question, uh, why does he prefer to borrow from profits on liquor rather than tobacco fund? Um, he's, he's sort of answered this. He said basically that like the tobacco fund is used for state programs. Um, and I, I mean, I'm sure it is, you know, in some ways a political move. I mean, he has been against privatizing the liquor industry. So it follows that it would make sense for him to make it a little harder to do that. Um, now, that being said, I mean, he has basically just said this is a, a reasonable option for the state. And right now, because he's not ruling out either one, he's going forward with the, you know, he's talked to the PLCB. They're like in the process of approving this borrow. And uh, the tobacco borrow would have to go through the Commonwealth Financing Authority, the CFA. And uh, so they're they're meeting on it, I think, middle of November. And so, um, you know, he's not stopping either process. Now, he's been for a little bit. He was sort of unclear about like what like whether he would just borrow both. But I think the plan as of now is to just get them both in a place where like it's possible in case one falls through completely and then borrow from one to fill this gap. Mm-hmm. Um, are Republicans accusing the governor of doing that, of flame politics with this? I mean, they always do. I mean, it, 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 I can't even keep track of if they did on that particular issue. <laughs> Some probably did. Yeah. So, all right, let's get back to... Well, before we do that, yeah. let me ask you if there's a timeline there where decisions have to be made. You mentioned that the, the CFA uh, is in the process of, of finding out what has to be done for and approving uh, borrowing from the LCB. Yeah, this is going to be longer term revenue. Um, we did see the uh, Treasury finally extend uh, a loan to the Commonwealth so we can continue paying our short term bills, which is what's happened in the past. Um, and, it, you know, it was a little bit, you know, um, uh, delayed this year because the budget was so late. Um, but now we have that money. So, like, there's really no short-term pressure right now. So uh, as far as the timeline goes, like, I think sooner is probably better than later. But, no, I haven't heard of a specific one. All right. Let's turn to some other things. Uh, you had touched on the school code mm. and uh, the reason and again, this is kind of I think it's going to be too. one of a few reasons. But okay. his spokesman did name that one as a possibility. And when you say that one, for someone just tuning in now, it's that uh, for economic reasons, the teachers could be laid off uh, based on their performance evaluation rather than seniority. Than seniority. Yeah. Is that how it's done now? No, as I understand it, and this is not an issue that I've looked into in like real great depth because we have an education reporter, but um, I think the way it's done now is you can't lay off teachers for economic reasons, and it, it is done by seniority if furloughs do happen for whatever reason. Um, but I would have to, we should have Kevin McCrory from WHYY on to talk more about that. He knows a lot about it. <laughs> well, let me follow up with what schools are getting then, because sure. when we talk, I mean, we've mentioned many times that this is now four months past the deadline. Uh, we have already identified, not we, uh, some people in state government, people in schools, other human service agencies have identified deadlines where they're going to start running out of money right. or you know, they're not going to have bills paid. Basically, that uh, they're getting a little bit antsy. So with the governor not making a decision on the school code just yet, when do school districts 
really get antsy and say, you know what, we need some money. Well, they're getting money because we passed the spending plan already. Right, right. So I we're mean, just this not is, paying for it. Right? <laughs> we're just not paying for it. Right, it's no big right. deal. Big, um, big credit card. Yeah. yeah, I don't think they're antsy at this point. I think you know, in the past, they've had to do their budgets in January, and so that you know, that's a time when schools do want to have a you know definitive way of planning for the revenue they're going to get the next year. So you know, I don't think they're antsy now. They got an increase in funding in this budget. Um, you know, Wolf had made sure that was in the spending plan, and the legislature. Did vote for that. So I think they're in an okay place. They're not, this is not a situation where it's like 2015 where schools weren't getting paid. They've always been getting the money that they expected. Hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is Katie Meyer, WITF's Capital Bureau Chief. We're talking about the proposed budget. Some of it is sealed already. The governor has already signed off an expansion of gambling. Actually, on most of it, it's uh, there are just a couple things before uh, the revenue package becomes law, and uh, we have that uh, we have the money to pay for the thirty-two billion dollar in spending that was approved back in the summertime. Katie Meyer talking about this and uh, identifying some parts of the budget. We're taking your phone calls too, uh, emails as well. Call one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. Send an email to smarttalk at witf dot org. You can leave a question or a comment on witf's Facebook page on Twitter. We are at Smart Talk WITF. Let's go to the phone. Heath is in New Cumberland. Heath. You're you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call, yes. Um I was I was wondering uh, if they had uh, uh, came to a conclusion as to how they're going to approach the medicinal marijuana tax and the shale tax. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much for your call. How about we go shale first, because this is something that the Governor Wolf has wanted from, well, actually in his first campaign for governor, and it was a big part of this budget, and the legislature, again, did not agree to a tax, a severance tax anyway, on natural gas drilling. Yeah, so um, Wolf is still sort of pushing for that. Uh, it does not look likely that it's going to be taken up anytime soon. Um, it's, you know, that severance tax has faced a variety of, uh, you know, just obstacles getting through the General Assembly, specifically through the House. The Senate did pass the severance tax as part of a, as a component of their proposed budget plan. Didn't really go anywhere. The House actually did, after like months and months, passed, um, really years, passed a severance tax through a committee uh, a couple of weeks ago. And now that, you know, severance tax is sort of waiting to get onto the floor, um, but it just it looks unlikely that it will. Um, you know, leaders say, oh, it's on the calendar, it's on the calendar, it'll come up eventually. It hasn't so far. Um, it hasn't been like called for a vote. It's, it's not even at the point where it's like being delayed. It's just not 
called up yet. And Gov- or, uh, Dave Reed, the House Majority Leader, did say that it's not going to be a component of this budget, like kind of was very clear about that. So, um, you know, where does it go from here? It's not going to go away. This issue is perennial. It's got huge support among Democrats and some Republicans. So um, we're going to see it again. But I just it, it seems unlikely right now that it's going to come up even in the next year, in the next budget cycle, because next year is an election year. And they just they have a lot of trouble passing, you know, big, you know, tax components during um yeah, election years. So I would be surprised if we saw it in the next year, but I also would be very surprised if it just got pushed under the rug. It's just going to be a very low-level issue for a long time. The governor has been very critical of House Republicans in particular yeah. uh, and has said that they care more about protecting the, the gas industry yeah. than they do, like, say, borrowing. I mean, that they would rather borrow than to uh, tax the natural gas drillers. And then he points out that we're the only state that uh, doesn't have uh, a severance tax on natural gas drillers. Republicans come back and say, yes, we do. We have an impact fee. So it goes back and forth. But he was, I mentioned, he was speaking at the Pennsylvania Press Club yesterday where that was one of the very first things he did was criticize over a lack of a severance tax. Yeah, um, and that's something he kind of does in every speech. Now, I do, I want to say, like, yeah, we are the only state without a severance tax. We do have an impact fee. That's more tied to the price of gas, so it fluctuates more. Um, But I mean, I I think it's a little bit disingenuous to act like the severance tax would fix the budget. Oh, yeah. It was $100 million they were talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's like, so again, we're borrowing $1.5 billion, and the severance tax would maybe be $200 million. So, I mean, yeah, it's going to be a component to the budget, but like, that's not the whole thing. Um, And so I, I do think people act sometimes like, well, if we just passed a severance tax, our problems would be over. Like, yeah, it's recurring revenue. Yeah, it's more recurring revenue than we've gotten in this budget, but also it's not going to end all the problems. You know, I have to catch myself from time to time. Oh, it's only $100 million. But <laughs> That's when you, nothing. But when you look at a $32 billion budget yeah. and a $2.2 billion deficit, $100 million, I remember when we had uh, Governor Wolf on at the uh, on the program at the Capitol. Yeah. I asked him that it's $100 million, Governor, and, uh, you know, kind of asking, I think everyone kind of expected more than $100 million. Of course, at this point, we have zero. Right. Now, getting back to uh, Heath's other question about uh, medical marijuana, are you familiar with how that will be taxed or will it be taxed? Um, he, Yeah, he did mention a tax. I am not super familiar with that. I mean, I'm assuming it's going to be taxed, but yeah, I, I'm not the person to well, ask. And again, it, it, it's probably not going to be a big moneymaker, even if Oh, would. yeah, no, that's not going to be a big moneymaker. That's not a, that's not really a factor when they talk about like making the budget. Right. And of course, maybe what he was leading to is that uh, there have been more people, including uh, the Auditor General, calling for legalization of uh, recreational marijuana yes. as a way to uh, try to uh, bring some money in for the state. All right. So let's talk about uh, gambling, because this is one of the areas where there will be some big changes in Pennsylvania. The expansion of gambling, Pennsylvania will be a solid number two. Solid number two. In the country, in gambling, the sources available, where you can do it, all those kind of things. And Nevada's number one, so I feel like that almost does not count. No. So So, we're like really at the forefront of like having real expansion of gambling in the state. And we have made up ground in a very short period of time. I mean, 2004 was when slot machines were first first legalized, and uh, here we are 13 years later, and a solid number two. All right, so let's look at the expansion of gambling. What does it include? 
So the big one, um, well, there's a couple big ones. Um, they're going to do 10, up to 10, new, what they're calling ancillary casinos, really miniature casinos. And those can be licensed, you know, they're supposed to be going to like outlying areas where there aren't casinos already. And ha- they have to be a certain distance from existing ones. So that's part of it. Um, the real controversial thing that they put in there was video gaming terminals. Initially, they wanted these to be in bars and taverns, but they're only going to be in truck stops. And those can be licensed through existing casinos and uh, that's going to make I think a a bunch of the money that's going to be in there there's also going to be a legalization of internet gambling um, and they're legalizing um, like gambling tablets in airports so those are the main things Um, and you know there's some question about like whether the tax rate on these is appropriate um, how much money it's actually going to make you know there was some contention I think some gambling you know some industry experts have said our rate I think we're like taxing at 55% the online gambling and uh, some have said like that's too high like uh, you know a a casino can't license that um, or you know a company can't license that because it just doesn't make back as much money as they're going to be taxing them at so I mean that's all like some stuff that's going to be worked out in the coming months and years as this gets underway. But I think the upshot of we should be kind of remembering about the gambling thing is that, uh, we, you know, we've done these expansions many times now, as we said. And uh, a lot of the time, you know, you earmark some revenue for gambling and it just doesn't come in as you're expecting. It was in last year's budget. It was, well, that was, that was in last year's budget. That's almost a different thing because they just didn't even pass a bill to create that money. Um, so it was $100 million in last year's and now they're saying it's 200 million that they're expecting and so a lot of that in the first year is going to be fees like licensing fees and things and um then the next year it's probably going to go down by like at least half so we're, we're looking at like maybe 90 million 100 million perhaps for revenue in like coming years after that that'll be recurring so i mean it's just it's it's hard to call gambling a real you know, solid money maker in the state, especially as you know, we're getting to sort of capacity on gambling in Pennsylvania. Yeah, you wonder how much further you can go with it. Yeah, yeah you really do. And I, I mean, th- this has been something because we're sort of a state that's very cautious about raising taxes. We sort of we resist doing that to a pretty great degree. Um, well, you know, this, which is why we've expanded gambling so far. It's one of the reasons. Um, I, I mean, it's sort of a, it's a it's a tool that I don't know how much longer our legislature is going to be able to use. You know, I think about it and, uh, you know, I think about what some other states are doing. And uh, the only other thing I can think of, well, I'm sure there are other things Mm. uh, beyond my imagination, but sports betting. Yeah. uh, Delaware allows that. Uh, In Nevada, of course, you can you can do that. But, uh, you know, before we even get to that point, but I'm just thinking that uh, maybe that's been gambling has been tapped out, has been tapped out a little bit. So I'm curious about uh, these uh, satellite casinos, yeah. what would they look like? I mean, how large would they be? You mentioned that they would be so many uh, miles away yeah. from an existing casino. I've been having trouble envisioning them in my mind's eye, but there's like a, a, a maximum number of slot machines that they can have. Um, I mean, I really, I think it's just going to be, it's like going to be like a casino, but small. Table games? I think they do table games. I have to look at the list again. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I can – maybe I'll do a story on that, what's going to be in there. But, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's going to be a, a, a miniature casino. So a mini- miniature casino, yeah. uh, and, and they've been re- referred to as uh, satellite casinos. You yeah. mentioned the license fees. To, is that what the license fees are for, the uh, satellite casinos? Yes. And I, the existing casinos, casino companies would pay for that? 
Uh, existing companies would mostly, I think. Um, I'm sure. I mean, if there's companies that are not yet in Pennsylvania, I'm not sure if they can get in on that. But uh, yeah, as far as I know, it's going to be you know existing companies that are already here. All right, you mentioned the truck stops, and we've yeah. seen the commercials uh, of a number of groups that have been lobbying against them. No VGTs where kids can play them. All right, so truck stops. I don't know whether there's a lot of children in truck stops, mm-hmm. but at the same time, why? Any idea why they restricted it to truck stops? Well, it was really just it was a political thing. Really, the House had wanted very badly to do VGTs because. Is, you know, their argument was this is something that already does happen illegally in the state. So why don't we regulate it, expand it a little bit and make money off of it? The Senate was pretty universally against these things. Um, and, you know, they were the ones saying, you know, this is going to you know, our kids are going to play VGTs. Um, so. They, I think it was a compromise, really, to make it less accessible. So, And that's why the satellite casinos came into it, too, because that was a way to like make up that revenue gap. So, uh, yeah, the Senate had pushed very hard not to have VGTs. The House pushed very hard to have them. So they compromised by putting them in truck stops. Airports. Airports. Yeah. Yeah, that's been something, I mean, I haven't really looked into that too much. But, yeah, it's going to be like sort of iPad-like gaming tablets in airports that you can play. How do you keep kids from playing that? I don't know. Um, I'm assuming that there's got to be some, you know, security thing. As you can tell, I mean, Katie usually knows her stuff when yeah. she comes on the program. And, and, I, I, and I'm not apologizing for you. What I'm saying is that a lot of this hasn't been made public. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to be like, yeah, I just didn't look this up. And a lot of the information just like isn't super accessible right now but and also like reading through it i've read through a lot of the gaming bill but it's like 300 pages long so there's little details in there and i think most of this stuff is probably in there but it's like in code and i have not been able to Mm. figure it out yet online gambling i mean this is something that a lot of people have been asking for for a long time yeah any idea how that would work well, you know, it's like online poker, that kind of thing. You can make money off of it now. You give a credit card number, and uh, that's it. that's how you would do it. I think so. I, I don't play a lot of online poker, um, but, uh, yeah, I feel like that's how it would work. <laughs> you know, one of when, – whenever you talk about the expansion of gambling, yeah. uh, the existing casinos – are always a little bit nervous about it because they're afraid that uh, it will take revenue away from their business. Yeah. Same with the Pennsylvania Lottery. And you seem to hear more about that this time during uh, the, the debate over these proposals than in years past. Is that a big concern that uh, expanding gambling takes money away from the Pennsylvania Lottery, which pays for programs for older Pennsylvanians. There has been some concern about that, and there's been a lot of concern from the casinos, you know, really about the same thing. And yeah, I mean, listen, anytime you're going to expand gambling and make it more available in other places, you, you run the risk of the word they always use is cannibalizing existing outlets. So I've heard it a little bit more from just like the industry because they're, you know, loud voices with lots of money. Um, but the lottery for sure has, you know, raised some concerns. What is the status of the lottery right now? I mean, I, I heard... Someone, I don't think it was on our station, but uh, I heard a report yesterday that uh, described this as, as the struggling Pennsylvania lottery. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been some concerns about how the lottery's doing. They actually just uh, put out a proposal, the Wolf administration did, to uh, sort of supplement the lottery by putting in um, basically video games. I think that, you know, put some revenue towards those Are state lotteries. Are you talking about Kino? 
I, I, it's, it's the thing is, it's unclear if it's actually Kino. I, I think it's just a, a video game, and I'm not sure if that's different from Kino in any way, but it's been unclear. I think one of the things that they're talking about is allowing uh, Kino to be approved, put it that way. Yeah. Kino is a game that's been played in other states, uh, usually in firehouses, bars, play, taverns, things like that. Uh, Pennsylvania has not had Kino up until right. now. Right, and I actually I asked the governor about that yesterday, and he wasn't sure what I was talking about. So who, kn- who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a phone call from Joe in Dallastown. Joe, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Scott. Good morning, morning Katie. Good morning. Um, I have not heard you discuss the increase in sales tax. Uh, is that still on the table, or um, what, what's what's the current thinking uh, in the General Assembly? All right, Joe, thank you very much for your call. Of course, an increase in sales tax is tied, for the most part, to property tax reform. Yeah, no, there hasn't been a sales tax increase in this budget. Um, so I'm not sure to what he's referring, but um, no, I mean that's been something that you know comes up a lot. You, you, people discuss increasing the sales tax, but uh, you know that's a very politically tricky thing to do. But and again, I, it is this has been tied. An increase in uh, sales tax has been tied to eliminating property taxes yeah. or reforming property taxes. Uh, oh, and for sure, replacing that, that revenue with uh, sales taxes, but. There is $140 million in taxes, and you refer to them as tiny tax increases. <laughs> Again, you're tiny of $140 million compared to drop uh, in the bucket, Scott. $32 billion budget Yeah, overall. so we, we should talk about those, though, because we don't want to not talk about any of this money. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be on uh, fireworks. They're going to expand sales of fireworks a little bit and wow. tax that. I know. <laughs> that is tiny. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, they're also going to do there's like a loophole in online sales where uh, you know products sold um, that are Amazon products are taxed, but products sold through Amazon as a vendor are not taxed when they're sold online, and so those are now going to be taxed. Mm. Uh, you, you talked about some of those fund transfers. Yes. Um, we actually had a few of the Republican House members on the program when they came out with uh, what they said would be you know, a budget with no tax increases. It's money that's already there. It included fund transfers. Is this what we're, we're referring to here? I mean, obviously, I think it's $300 million. Uh, it's not as big as what those House members had. Yeah, they had, had like a billion originally. Right. But yeah, this is the same thing. Um, now, it's also like... I think what the thing to remember on this is like we don't know where exactly that money's coming from. And three hundred million is nothing small. You know that's going to be pretty significant transfers. Um, but uh, you know they left it up to Wolf to decide, which you know in some ways sounds like okay, good. They're giving the governor options. But also, you know, when somebody gets really mad that he's taken their money, it's going to be his name on the lawsuit now. So I mean, you know, it's a come say come sa like thing. But. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we don't know where the fund transfers are coming, but those are going to be coming out of what's called the special funds, which are sort of off-budget funds, and they're, you know, using to be – they're funding existing programs right now. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, you something you just said about the governor's name being on yeah. it. And I wanted to ask you this earlier. Uh, actually, asked the governor the same question, but I'll ask you three months later, <laughs> four months later. Uh, you said that, you know, one of the governor's options would be to allow this budget to become law – without his signature. Now, he's done that several times. Mm-hmm. Why? 
Well, I think it's sort of just like a, a way of divesting responsibility. But I mean, it really is. It's sort of symbolic more than anything, because he could veto it right. and keep it from becoming law. But instead, he's just not signing it. So I know it really doesn't make a functional difference. And I should say, like, he has signed almost all of it. It's just the education code and then a couple things he has to make, you know, additional decisions on. So he's he's putting his name behind most of this budget. We'll see if he does the education code, too. Well, and the governors of states, including here in Pennsylvania, have line item veto power. Yes. Where they can go line by line and say, if I don't like this, boom, it's in red, it's gone. Yep. Yep. That's true. But the governor would prefer not to do that or what? Well, I, I don't know. It's unclear. Um I think at this point he knows, like, if he vetoes a bunch of stuff and sends the bill back or something, you know, then he just has less money and he has to have, you know, he throws this whole rigmarole with the House and the Senate being unable to agree on stuff again. I think he just knows he, this is kind of the best he's going to get, you know, and uh, it's sort of it puts us into a weird position, obviously, going forward because it's like, OK, now what can we do? You know, this is the baseline, you know, borrowing is what this legislature can agree on. And, you know, how long is that going to last us? So what are the governor's options? Well, I mean, he signed most of the budget, like the budget's mostly done. But, um, you know, as far as the education code goes, you know, maybe he could line item um, the the provision about the um, teacher layoffs. But I, I mean, I think... Really, the options are going to be just let it become law without a signature or, you know, maybe send it back. He seemed to be hinting at that, but I just, I just don't think he will. So where do we go from here? Well, we just wait and see where this money's going to come from. I think the biggest question we have right now is where, you know, the borrowing is coming from, um, that $1.5 billion. And we're going to be, you know, stay tuned. We'll see where it comes from. But, I mean, you know, the money's there. I think that's kind of the upshot of this. It's like, all right, you know, we've done it. The budget is mostly figured out. There's just like some little bits and bobs here and there that we have to lock down. Katie, we only have a couple minutes left. Mm-hmm. And uh, one other item that's it is budget related, but it's not, and that is the uh, renewal of the chip program, yeah. the children's health insurance program. Um, the feds had to renew, and here in Pennsylvania, the states had to uh, re- renew as well. Yep. Uh, in previous years, this has not been a big deal. Right. This year, there was a little bit of a, some controversy, and more than a little bit. Uh, explain what that controversy is, and. What happened with CHIP? Sure. So, um, yeah, in the renewal, it happens every two years. Um, You know, some lawmakers put in a provision that initially would have um, not covered, you know, uh, services related to transgender children. So that would have been like reassignment surgeries and also associated like counseling and things, you know, that related to being transgender. Um, That caused uproar. And the bill can't pass, you know, the governor said, if the bill includes this, I'm going to veto it. Now, um, they did take out the provision that would have um, not covered uh, um, counseling. So now it's really just the reassignment surgery component of it. So Basically, that insurance would not pay for it. And this is state taxpayer money. Right. CHIP insurance would not pay for a child's reassignment surgery. And a, a child, you know, anybody under 18. So, um, you know, some Republicans are saying, like, yeah, that's a controversial thing. 
saying taxpayer dollars shouldn't be paying for these surgeries. Uh, opponents are saying, like, this is not our decision to make. You know, lawmakers shouldn't be deciding whether or not a surgery is necessary for a person. So um, this became an issue, by the way. Um, the Obama administration um, made it mandatory for states to cover that stuff back in, like, summer 2016. And so it, that's why it's a relatively new problem, is that uh, they didn't have to cover this before. The state wasn't covering it. But Pennsylvania got into compliance with the Obama administration in like August of last year and had been covering this since then. But then when you know Donald Trump was elected, um, his administration is reconsidering it. So they put they're not they're not enforcing um, protections for transgender children or no, I guess not protections, but coverage for surgeries and things like that. So now it's pretty much up to the state to decide whether or not they want to cover it. And obviously there's a disagreement over whether or not it's appropriate. WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer. Katie, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamont. A week from today, Pennsylvania voters will go to the polls and elect municipal officials like mayors and council members. There will be common pleas court judges elected in some counties. Statewide, voters will cast ballots for Supreme, Superior, and Commonwealth Court judges. Being a champion requires mental toughness. Being able to block out the noise and make the right play when the game is on the line. As a judge, I brought that same work ethic and commitment to the bench. Served his country and has fought for our safety as a tough but fair prosecutor the only former district attorney on Superior Court, and is endorsed by the state troopers and the FOP. Keep Pennsylvania safe. Hello, I'm Martin Sheen. Joe and I have worked tirelessly for social justice, for workers' rights, protection of the environment, and establishment of drug and veterans' courts. He's received the highest recommendation from the Pennsylvania Bar. Those are just a sampling of some of the TV commercials that you've probably seen over the last few weeks of candidates introducing themselves and talking a little bit about their their backgrounds. Here in Pennsylvania, they can't do that a whole lot. The fact is, most voters don't know much about the candidates for statewide judicial post, and state law doesn't allow candidates to say much other than introducing themselves and talking about their experience and how tough and fair they are. This is a problem that many would like to see rectified. Joining us is Dr. G. Terry Madonna, Franklin and Marshall College political analyst and pollster. Terry, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks as always, Scott. This week you wrote a column with uh, your, your colleague uh, Michael Young, Dr. Michael Young, uh, talking about uh, how Pennsylvania elects judges and why it's not a good idea. But I, I want to start with something else. Those three courts, those state, those three state right. appeals courts, Supreme, Superior, Commonwealth. I wonder how many people in the state actually know what those courts do. Yeah, well, I think relatively few. I mean, the Supreme Court, perhaps, because, you know, it plays a role not unlike the United States Supreme Court, where it's the final arbiter of civil and criminal cases that, you know, arise in the state. And as a result of that, they might have some notion, but uh, take a look at the Commonwealth Court, for example. Maybe by the term Commonwealth, you might think, well, it has to do with state issues, which would be correct. Uh, but my sense is not very, not, not very many. Uh, and that's a problem with electing jurists. This is the third, by the way, the third column Mike Young and I have written. We wrote one back in 2007, a second one in 2015, and of course this year in 2017. 
suggesting that maybe we ought to sit down and take a look at how we, uh, whether we should continue to elect these judges statewide. Uh, all told this year, there'll be seven, there are seven vacancies on the three courts that you just mentioned to be elected in a statewide election, and there are three retentions every 10 years jurists in the state have to stand for what's called a retention the voters get to vote yes or no on whether they'll get a you know another 10-year term there's no opponent it's not democrat versus republican it's just a yes no in a very complicated ballot well as you mentioned okay you and uh, mike young have written about this three different times uh and this is an issue that has gotten some attention i mean former governors of both republican right. and democratic governors in this state have come out several times and say have said this is not the best way for pennsylvania to get judges on the bench electing right. them is not the best way so Correct. it's something that has gotten some attention and has actually gotten some powerful people behind it but why hasn't anything happened well let's start with the fact that it takes that the average voter you know voters as someone who studied voters for the last 30 years pretty closely it's not something that's that's very close to them it's not intimate it's not what i call kitchen table talk conversation with families you don't sit down in the morning while you're having breakfast and say oh by the way who should we vote for in the superior court race? (laughs) (laughs) The kind of discussions that we all have right around the the table. And so there's no pressure. There's no uh, sense of urgency about it, as you might have a governor or a U.S. senator or a mayor in a city, for example, or a a major official in some other local, in, in local government. There's no pressure. And to change, you have to modify the Constitution of the state. We think about that. To votes twice in different sessions of the General Assembly, as you know, and then it has to go to the voters. It is a tortuous process, and because for the most part there's not a, a controversy around it, it just goes on and on and on and on. Well, when you say there's not a controversy about it, I mean, we have these kind of discussions, and voters have these kind of discussions, I'm sure, too. Maybe they don't have that kitchen table conversation of, okay, uh, should we be voting on judges or, you know, who's the best candidate? But at the same time, they have to realize when they don't know anything about the candidates, they don't recognize the candidates other than maybe name recognition. Maybe not even that. Maybe not even that. Ballot position, uh, something else. That there's a real problem with it. Let's take a phone call from Tony in Lancaster. Tony, you're on the air. Yeah, hold on a second. I'm on my way. Tony, I don't know who, I, I don't know what that is, but uh, I couldn't. Yeah, but he's on his way, right? Yeah, he's on his way, but I couldn't understand him <laughs> what he was saying, and maybe that's a good thing. But uh, anyway, um, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, judicial candidates are limited in Correct. how they can can campaign. Correct. Those other offices you point. mentioned, uh, you know, those running for president, governor, U.S. Senate, even for city council or something like Any that, office, yeah. they can say, here's what I propose to make change or to make Correct. life better. Candidates for judge can't do that. Correct. Yeah, now, there's that's you're exactly right. The Judicial Code of Conduct prevents that. Uh, and there's a whole section... In, uh, in in the code 
that spells out the do's and the don'ts about not appearing with other candidates. I mean, it's pretty complicated. Now, there was a Supreme Court decision a few years ago, Minnesota v. White, that allows uh, that there's a First Amendment issue with what candidates can say. Uh, in our state, however, with the Code of Conduct, it's it's still pretty restricted. In other words, you very seldom do you find judicial candidates going out and talking much about their their. their first of all, they don't they don't talk about issues that might come before the court. That's point number one. Can't point do number it. two. Yeah. They generally might talk about, describe their philosophy. So are they? Are they going to make fighting crime a big issue? You know, battling crime if they're on the court. Are they civil libertarians? You get the point. Generally and generically, they can talk about in general terms. Basically, it's about their resume, their experience, and why why that merits their selection uh, to uh, the three. You know, one of the three courts. And so the voters overall don't have much of a choice. You mentioned earlier something that is very important. These elections, it's basically, does somebody by region have any kind of name recognition? Now, we have a certain former defensive back for the Pittsburgh Steelers running this right, year. Right. He's a judge out in Allegheny County. Uh, you notice I've not mentioned his name. I'm not to we can, but I was not trying to promote his, you know what I mean, give him some yeah, name recognition. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the point is, he's probably known out in western, southwestern PA for obvious reasons. These little things can matter, as you point out, like the region, uh, a name that, that strikes a chord. But more importantly, it's probably going to be straight party voting. If you don't know something about a candidate or candidates running for a particular office, the tendency for most people is just to vote their party. And in some cases, people just won't vote for an office you know, that they're unfamiliar or for individuals running for an office they're unfamiliar with. So there's no panacea here. Overall, it's not a good – there's no, not a perfect system, but this is the least perfect of the systems that are possible. Pennsylvania – is only one of six states that continues to elect all of its jurists, all of them. And you notice in the column that we wrote, we only singled out the statewide races. It's okay to elect county court, you know, courts of common pleas, uh, individuals to judgeships. For the obvious reason, at the county level, you have a better chance of knowing who they are and something about them for obvious reasons. Let's take. You no, know, I understand that th this is the real Tony from Lancaster. Tony, are you there? Yeah, thanks. I got uh, cut off the other time. Oh, I'm at work. Okay. Uh, but uh, listen, uh, I think this is really important. Your show today covered two topics which aren't going to be good for ratings, but are really important. One is the state budget. That's pretty sad. But the other one is the judge thing. And um, I don't have an opinion on electing or appointing. I mean, that's a very hypothetical kind of thing. But I w would remind people that it's a really uh, important for them to get out and vote in these uh, judge elections. A couple of years ago, we had an off-year election in which the uh, Supreme Court in Pennsylvania went Democratic. It, it suited me, but if it didn't suit you and you didn't vote, that's too bad. But, um, you know, these uh, these uh, 
Uh, and that's and that that Supreme Court has changed a lot of stuff in Pennsylvania. It doesn't even get in the papers. So I think it's really important for people to, as long as we do have elected judges, to actually uh, get a, off the couch and uh, go out and vote in these off-year elections. Here's where you can really change things in many cases. That's all, right, all Tony, I have to say. Thank you very much for your call. You know, Terry, he is absolutely right. These are, and 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 that's why this is so frustrating that a lot of the decisions made by these judges could have an impact on the day-to-day lives of Pennsylvanians. Absolutely. And he's on to something else. I mean, if you go back two years ago to 2015, $16 million was spent on these uh, Supreme Court elections. And I'm going to pause for a minute and tell you that it was the most expensive court election in American history. So if you go back, then you go back last year, we had the most (laughs) expensive United States uh, U.S. Senate election in American history, something like 170, 175 million uh, spent, overall spending in the Toomey re-election, Senator Toomey's re-election last year. And much of the money, and here's the sad feature of it, not accusing anybody of any wrongdoing, they're playing by the rules, but many of the people who contribute, many of the organizations that fund these elections, you know, have interest before the court. They're either in law firms that practice before the court or folks who have clients, you know, potentially or currently clients before the appeals courts. Again, they're not doing anything wrong. It's perfectly legal what they're doing. But the more money gets spent, the more of this activity that goes on, I think the more the questions get raised about about aspects of of this of these appeals courts decisions and their practices. Something else that is a factor and not in a good way is that uh, traditionally, well, they're called off-year elections, but yeah. traditionally, uh, this is a year when there is very low turnout. Uh, that there, you know, aren't the uh, high-profile races right. like president and governor, U.S. Senate, that kind of thing, and as a result, I don't know. We may be looking at what ten to fifteen percent turnout of. Oh yeah. Th- that's ten to fifteen percent of registered voters who will decide these very important decisions, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. I used to talk about well, if you get to twenty or twenty-five percent, declare victory. I mean, you know, break out the champagne for the turnout. You're, you know, unless you have. A situation locally where there's a hot topic uh, in a in you know a relatively uh, confined area. Although we've had some big Philly, we don't now, but back in the day we had some pretty big Philadelphia mayoral elections. That's not this year. That was two years ago, uh, and you know they they drew some turnout because of a lot of controversies that were attached to that. But overall, it's very very low turnout. And then you add another thing. Take a look at the size of the ballot where we're electing local officials, people to school boards, people to, let's say, township or or city, you know, city officials, city council. You mentioned that earlier. Right on up to county officials. I mean, we're talking about a ballot that is virtually impossible for the average. I, I don't even I have to check almost every day in my own municipality, who's running and what do I know about them? That's how comp- – I mean, it's just extraordinarily complicated, far more than the average 
voter is going to pay much attention to. Well, even school boards is one of those races where I find yeah. it personally hard to even know where the candidates stand on issues and what those issues issues even are, considering the mandates from, from the state. Terry, right. we only have about 45 seconds late, uh, left. So, you know, we, we talked about, uh, you know, an alternative to be appointing judges. Yep. We can talk about that on another program. But for this election, how should voters decide on who to vote All right, for? There are for a number judges? of a great question. There are a number of folks who have guides. The legal voters, others, the, news, the local newspapers, uh, have bios and and stories and columns about local elections. I think you got to dig. You got to you know it. It may not come to you, but you have to go and 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 search out these uh, avenues for uh, information. Uh, there, it, it is there, and now in some cases I should say it is there. It's not often detailed enough to give you a sense, but you know, uh, if you're looking for a lot of specifics, but it'll give you an overall view of the candidates and. Uh, in some cases, what they stand for, what they would do, in some cases, not. Yeah. I want a tough, fair judge, and that should narrow it down, I think, a whole lot. Yeah. Terry Badata, Franklin Marshall College political analyst and pollster, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Coming up tomorrow, it's day one of open enrollment for health insurance. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our community. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com slash spine.